invite you this morning to return with me to the book of Genesis, but first, if you would, to the Gospel of John. We'll go to the eighth chapter and verse 56. John 8, 56, and then if you would put a marker there or your finger and then turn back with me to Genesis chapter 22. We uh, return to the same passage we considered last week, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. And uh, we'll begin with John 8. I'm sorry, we'll begin with Genesis and then go to John 8. I realize that we are uh, not progressing forward uh, this morning, that we're staying on the same passage we considered last week, uh, giving something of a double coverage to this passage, this history of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. But uh, I am sure that you will agree with F.B. Meyer, who wrote that so long as men live in the world, they will turn to this story with unwaning interest. And it is a story and history of unwaning interest, is it not? I mean, here we have in the scripture just about the clearest, if not the clearest picture of Christ's own sacrifice short of the gospels themselves. We love to return to this story because herein we find not only a gripping story, and of course it is that of life and death, but also we find the Lord and the means by which he has saved us by his own sacrifice. But I get ahead of myself. Let us first pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon his word and that he will cause it to live in us. Our Father in heaven, hardly any time do we know ourselves to be more in need of your grace and of your Spirit's power than when we go to the Word and recognize that this is thy Word. This is the voice of God. And our Father, we would hear every word and live according to your Word and have it woven right into our hearts and our lives. And so we pray, O oh God, that he will be here to illumine the same word that he inspired so many thousands of years ago, this word that you have preserved for us to this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 22, we begin at verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife so both of them went on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. 
He said, Behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, to, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went on and went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then to John chapter 8 and verse 56. John 8, 56. Jesus now speaking to the Jews. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It may be somewhat presumptuous of me, I will confess, to read these two passages together this morning, the history of Isaac's almost slaying and the passage from John's Gospel. After all, theologians and exegetes have struggled for years to draw a certain conclusion about what it was in Abraham's life, what event, when it was in particular that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. But I tell you, I cannot help but think that this was the day to which, this is the time in Abraham's life to which Jesus was referring. You know the situation in the midst of a lengthy debate between Jesus and the Pharisees, a debate that ends with the near stoning of Jesus. They had the rocks in their hands when the conversation was over. I say in the course of being hounded by the Pharisees who insisted that they were not in any bondage because they were the sons of Abraham. They were Abraham's descendants. Jesus tells them that in fact they are in bondage. They're in bondage to their sin. And they're in bondage to their father, the devil. Strong language indeed. This was after all the church of Jesus' day and some of the most powerful leaders in it. And they claim that honor for themselves in the name of Abraham, their father. So you can only imagine how, how, how outraged they became when Jesus said of their father, Abraham, that he rejoiced to see my day. What presumption, what, what arrogance, what blasphemy. 
And most of all, what an affront to them and to their positions. Such an upstart had to go. And they had, had they had their way, he would have died that very day. As it is, they pursued him and they hounded him the rest of his life with lies and deceit until finally they accomplished their evil ends at Calvary. But here's my point. When did Abraham see Christ's day and rejoice? At what point in his life, what event in Abraham's life was it when he saw Christ's day and was glad? I say it may be somewhat presumptuous of me to press this point, but it seems to me that every indication points to this day, the almost slaying and then the receiving back of Isaac, as it were, from the dead. Where in all of Abraham's life, or indeed all of Scripture, before his coming, do we have a clearer picture of the sacrifice of Christ for us, for our sin. And then the triumphant rising again from the dead. Short of the prophecies of Isaiah, of the suffering servant, I, I can't think of any. But what makes this revelation of Christ in Genesis 22 so powerful and so perspicuous, so clear, is that we have here not only a prophecy in words, but a prophecy in pictures, in living characters. How, how wonderfully God has revealed his salvation to you and to me. How wonderfully he has made this known to us, not only in black and white letters on a page, brothers and sisters, but in living characters of blood and flesh. And pictures that we can see and understand and grasp and hold on to. We call them types. Types of Christ, by which we mean that God and the divine genius did not only tell us of the Christ who was to come. No, too important was it for him that his people fixed their faith in him merely to tell them he must also show them. And into their history, in our history, God marvelously weaves the anticipations of the events that are still yet to come, especially the incarnation and the, the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, in showing his people and not merely telling them of the Savior to come, God prophesied to us in the form of persons and places and things and events. We call them types of Christ, and we call the study of those types typology. <coughs> now, these types of Christ are scattered all throughout the Scripture, especially what we call uh, for lack of better terms, the Old Testament. For instance, God set up offices in the kingdom, offices of prophet and of priest and of king. All three of those offices anticipated and looked forward to the one who would fulfill them perfectly as the prophet, the priest, and the king, who is Christ our Lord. Or, or consider the type of Christ in the Passover. 
the lamb who was slain for the sake of others, whose blood was shed and placed on the doorposts and under which they were shielded by those stains. In fact, that that lamb was to be killed, but, but not a single bone broken in the process, just as with Christ and so on. It was all the anticipation, all the picture of the Christ, the Savior yet to come. Well, now consider here the picture drawn in living characters for us here in chapter 22 of Genesis. The parallelism and the symbolism are so marvelously obvious. Actually, the first parallel we have already considered several weeks ago, you might remember during the Advent season, Isaac's conception and, and birth was nothing short of miraculous. Abraham was an old man. He said he was 100 at the time, and his wife 90 when the Lord told him that the child to be born to them was to be named Isaac. Nothing short of an astounding work of God could bring this about. So it was with Jesus. The very same uh, astounding uh, God who did this, who brought this about. Except in Mary's case, of course, caused him to be conceived in the Virgin, which awesome work has left our mouths gaping ever since. So from the very beginning of his life, Isaac has been in many ways a type or a picture of Christ. Then look at the language in the passage before us, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And in that description of Jesus, God's only begotten son, you I mean, rather, in that description of Isaac, do you not hear the description of Jesus, God's only begotten Son, whom he loved so dearly, and of whom he said, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Our watch as Isaac now carries on his back the wood for the sacrifice on which he himself is to be offered. Do you not see there Christ bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, to Golgotha, where his life would also be laid upon the altar? In fact, think about the very place of this offering, this sacrifice of Isaac. It's on a mountain that God showed to Abraham, of course, Mount Moriah. Where was Mount Moriah? Where was that? The only other time we hear about it in particular in Scripture is 2 Chronicles 3. And there Mount Moriah is identified as the place where God halted the plague. Where? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. This is where Solomon built his temple. In other words, where Abraham and Isaac go and build an altar and prepare the sacrifice of his only begotten son, it is the very place, or at least very close to that place, where Christ himself was laid on the altar, where he was nailed to the cross and would be offered as a sacrifice some thousand years later. Surely this history 
is meant to propel Abraham's sight ahead to the one who was to come, to come, in fact, from his own seed, from, from Isaac, his own son Isaac, who from whose line the Savior was eventually to be born. One writer calls this passage, along with Psalm 22, you remember, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in Exodus 12, the Passover, and Isaiah 53, I say it's been called with those passages, Psalm 22, Exodus 12, Isaiah 53, the highest mountain peaks in the Old Testament in the progressive revelation of Jesus, the Son of God. But Abraham's not the only one who gets to stand on this peak of revelation. You see, you get to stand with Abraham on this mountain peak of revelation through the word. And that, brothers and sisters, with the benefit of hindsight, of being able to look backwards, we get to even see more clearly the Christ revealed at Moriah a millennia before he will die there himself. And so I say, first of all, dear Christians, look at Moriah and look at the sacrificed Christ. That's the first point. Here we see the sacrificed Christ. That's the main point, isn't it? God has called upon Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, his beloved son, whom he loves. <clears throat> now you say to me, well, sacrifices, I mean, they would start until the time of, of Moses when God gave him the law, but, but that would be a mistake. God's people were making offerings and, and sacrifices to God long before Moses codified that in the law. And they understood even then that the sacrifices they were bringing were not themselves sufficient to save them from their sin, but rather the anticipation, a picture of the greater, the great sacrifice yet to come that would truly make atonement for them, not only in picture, but in reality. How much of this Abraham could have grasped? How many of these details he caught? I wonder. We cannot say for certain. But looking back, we surely see the, the remarkably detailed picture of Christ on the cross. Three, three days it took three days en route to the place of sacrifice, three days in which Isaac was as good as dead. And then the father raising the blade to take the life of his own son and to burn him on the altar. Those are but a few of the, of the details. C.S. Lewis couldn't have drawn a clearer picture 
of the sacrifice of Christ, not even with Aslan and a stone table in Narnia. What I'd like for you to consider carefully now is, is that last thing that I mentioned. The father with the knife in his hand. Wonder, Christians, and marvel at the, the immense love, the unspeakable love of father for son. Abraham's heart must have been, been breaking and turning inside out. Can't you imagine his hand trembling as he held the knife and looked at the neck of his son where perhaps he was to cut his throat or looking at his chest where he was to plunge it into his heart. How Abraham must have been turning inside out. And that's merely, merely the love of an earthly father for his son, flawed and imperfect as it must be. Can you begin to imagine, Christians, the love of a perfect heavenly father filled with perfect love for his perfect son as he put him to death as a sacrifice for your sin? Abraham raised the blade, but, but was stopped in the nick of time <coughs> from taking his son's life by the gracious sound of the voice of the angel of God. But the wrath that fell on thee, son, was not held back. The father poured all of his wrath out, and he pulled it, poured it out full strength on his son. He held the cup of his anger to his son's lips until it was drained to the dregs. And there was no one there to say, Stop. Stop. This is God's son whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. Do you not imagine? Can you not at least begin to think with what exquisite grief it was for the perfect heavenly father to put the perfectly obedient son to death, not for his sins, for he had none, but for yours and mine. Sacrifice of Christ is, is then made all the more remarkable and precious and wonderful and terrible for the fact that it was not ultimately a frenzied crowd of hateful men. It was not ultimately a spiteful Roman government that put him to death, who nailed him to the tree. No, it was something more, much more than that. The sacrifice of the Son, the Scripture tells us, was by the work of the Father who by his own definite plan and according to his foreknowledge brought him, his own son, his beloved son, his only begotten son, him he personally escorted to the cross. Where Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and Jews, where they only did what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place says Acts 4, 
when he spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then on the other end of that knife, look at Isaac, the willing son, willingly going with his father, willingly walking the path to his own death, bearing the wood himself, who gave his hands over to his father without complaint to be tied and to be bound. Can't you imagine that if Isaac had wanted to, he could easily have overpowered his aged father? Can't you imagine that if Abraham had any idea that Isaac would resist, that Isaac would resist, that he would not have taken him by surprise and knifed his throat from behind him? No. This was the son who willingly was placed on the altar. So it is with Jesus, the son, who willingly obeyed his father and laid down his life for us. In fact, did he not tell his disciples precisely that during his own life, that he was to lay down his life for his sheep, not unwillingly, not begrudgingly. No, he said to them, I lay it down of my own accord. In Moriah, we see the sacrifice Christ. And second, dear brothers and sisters, look at Moriah and see the substitutionary Christ. The substitutionary Christ. Here we have our eyes turned not toward Abraham nor even toward Isaac now, but the uh, picture of Christ in the ram and the thicket. Isaac could be a, a picture of Christ. Of course he could, and he was, but only to a point. Isaac could die as a sacrifice, but he could not die as a substitute. So here the spotlight of God's revelation swings to stage right. And there we see the rustling bush and the ram caught by its horns. This was the one about which Abraham had spoken to Isaac by faith when he told his inquiring son that God himself would provide. I've already said that God's people knew the meaning of the sacrifices, that they were the picture of, of substitution, of deliverance, of the worshiper from guilt by the death of another, of a substitute, the penalty for sin, what we deserve, what we have earned, even this morning, before we even stepped into this house of worship, the death that we have deserved and richly earned every day of our lives, every one of us has brought upon ourselves. We've brought ourselves under the death Penalty for breaking God's holy law, the holy God's holy law. Now someone, someone has got to die. Someone has to die. Either us 
for someone else in our place. And that's exactly where Christ came in. <coughs> where is the lamb? Isaac asked his father, we have the fire, we have the wood. Where's the lamb? And the question was asked for centuries, where is the lamb? Isaiah asked, where is the lamb? The psalmist asked, where is the lamb? Malachi asked, where is the lamb? They asked for 400 years of silence. Behold the lamb said John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And like our spiritual fathers and mothers of old, we may place our hands on the head of this Lamb and transfer our sins to Him where He is slain and his blood is poured out for our sins, not in symbol only, but with this lamb in truth and in reality. And watch how that willing lamb lays down his life so capably, so willingly in our place. That's what all of these scriptures rise up to say. The very same thing from Isaiah's. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on, on him, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. To Paul's for our sake. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To Peter's, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Yes, it can. And it is. Hallelujah. What a Savior. God grant that we may never tire of hearing this wonderful news over and over and over and over again. And may we never think not for one moment that we could add anything of our own to this sacrifice. It was not the lamb and Isaac who were offered. It was the lamb instead of Isaac. It was the lamb provided by God. 
not by Isaac, not by Abraham. They did nothing, nothing. God has stood in our place and he has taken on himself the penalty for our sin and it is done and the transaction is finished. It is complete and you cannot add a thing, Christians, nothing. And remember that Martin Luther so carefully explained to us that nothing does not mean a little something. Nothing means nothing. All you can bring to this sacrifice <coughs> to the cross, all you can bring is your sin. That's all you have to bring. That's all we have to contribute. He has done it all. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Hallelujah, what a savior. Look off into Mount Moriah at the Christ who was sacrificed to more than that, was sacrificed as a substitute. And then, dear flock, look at Moriah and rejoice at the resurrected Christ. That is, I think, what Abraham rejoiced to see above all was Christ's, in Christ's day. Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise the dead. <coughs> Abraham had to believe that God could raise the dead. After all, this was his only son, and he hadn't even gotten married, much less had children. And it was through this son that Abraham was to become a great nation. Indeed, through this son that Abraham was to find his very salvation. Could it be that this is the end? Was God in the end going to renege on his promises? It could never be. Was God... If God was to take Isaac from him in death, Abraham's faith said to his own heart, there was only one option, that God would also raise him from the dead. And that, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is exactly what God did. In effect, in a very real sense, he raised Isaac from the dead, and he has done the same thing for his own son. The great shepherd of his sheep, he has raised him from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. And just like Abraham rejoiced to have his son, as it were, back from the dead, so did the disciples rejoice, you remember. They were glad, writes John, when they saw the Lord. Or here, Luke say, <coughs> after the Lord's ascension to heaven from the Mount of Olives, and they worshiped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This is what our faith is all about. That is the very center, brothers and sisters. It's the, the capstone. If we were, were to consider Christianity and our biblical faith an arch, it would be the keystone on which everything else must rest the resurrection 
of Christ pictured here at Moriah and accomplished at the empty tomb. There is a resurrection, Christians. And not only Christ's resurrection, but in him our own resurrection is sure. And we laugh like Abraham. Can you imagine how he must have laughed from the bottom of his belly and from the depths of his heart when Isaac, his son, was given back to him. So we look at Moriah, at the one who was dead, but who was brought back from the dead in a manner of speaking. And we say with our hearts, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? See, we're so happy we confuse them. We get them, we talk about victory first, the sting first and victory next. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.